My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. I love the English language, except when it's being abused by Wall Street Sharpies who want to throw you off the scent by making the market seem totally incomprehensible. So after a roller coaster day where the average initially got hammered before rebounding, Dow only gaining 16 points, S&P advancing 0.13%, NASDAQ finishing only down 0.50%. Boy, was it ugly at one point. Let's do some translating. I want you to consider this your Wall Street to English dictionary for understanding the year 2021. First confusing term, oh, if I have to hear this, reflation. Reflation is just a regular old inflation after a prolonged period without inflation. When you hear reflation, it means we're now getting higher prices for all sorts of commodities, foodstuffs, lumber, polyethylene, copper, linerboard, the kind of stuff that goes up when there's strong demand for basic goods, throwing oil for good measure, okay? When you see this kind of pickup in demand, the hedge fund playbook says you need to sell the highest growth stocks and buy the cyclical stocks that do better in a rapidly expanding economy, meaning all the stuff that's seeing price increases. That's what these people mean by reflation trade. The thing is that trade means the broader market's going lower because the big growth stocks get broomed. And in come the classic smokestack stocks, of which we have like a dozen in this country, like Caterpillar, Deer, Nucor, and nine other guys. The growth stocks make up a larger percentage of the averages, though, which is why they were down big this morning before Fed Chief Jay Powell made some encouraging comments that allowed us to rebound. Powell pretty much said he won't lift a finger to stop inflation until the economy's at full employment. The Fed's not just your friend. It's your best friend forever. BFF. Fed BFF. Now, one of the tricks of the reflation trade is that steady eddy growth stocks get purged. These names do well in a static low inflation environment because there's not much competition, but they're less attractive during expansion when you've got all these other companies that can raise prices thanks to surging demand. All right, so let's take Apple. You guys know Apple? Yeah. All right, okay. Apple, that's a stock that lots of people... Uh, are giving up one right now. Oh, boy, they hate it. It's like really scary, right? Apple won't charge more for phones or computers or AirPods in this environment. They don't just say, wow, lumber's going up. Let's charge more. No, they'll keep consistently doing what they always do. They actually like their customers. They want them happy. Now, let's look at them from the opposite direction. What do you think happens at the hotel industry when we're all vaccinated and America's open for business? Will we pay the same price for hotel rooms? Will we pay the same price for airline tickets? Theme parks? Of course not. So for stocks like Marriott, Disney, or Southwest Air, you're going to have to expect a chorus of estimate boosts. And when the earnings estimates go higher, well, guess what happens? That's the single biggest reason why a stock goes higher. Something like Apple may end up selling more product than we thought, but Marriott will sell more product at higher prices. Southwest can double the number of passengers flying from Houston to Chicago. The cost to them is the same. So every additional dollar flows to the bottom line, and that's called operating leverage making more money off the same cost. And the companies that have it are golden. The ones without it, Wall Street don't like them right now. Let's go a step further. We value stocks based on their future earnings streams. When there's inflation, those future earnings streams are worth less because inflation erodes the value of money. If that cash is worth less in the future, okay, then your stocks are worth less right now, especially the growth stocks that are all about doing big numbers many years down the road. That's strike two against growth. Who gets hit the hardest? 
the ones that have no earnings, only sales, because they're even more expensive. They're fine when the economy's stagnant, but that's no longer the case. So these dream stocks like the SPACs, they drift lower. You see how ugly they were today? Well, some of that was because of Churchill Capital, the SPAC merging with Lucid Motors. That was down 38%. Lucid wants to out Tesla Tesla, but the stock got way ahead of itself, and the, propo- the prospect of heightened inflation means that their future revenue streams are suddenly a lot less enticing, and everyone looked Churchill, and they just gave everything a big haircut, okay? All those stocks. Now, the full beatdown this morning didn't last as the market rebounded in the afternoon because Powell threw water on the reflation trade. And because many of the great growth stocks of this era had fallen double digits from their highs, something that on mad money we say, you gotta buy. That's what we did for action alerts. But I think the morning, not the afternoon, did give us a preview of what the world could look like if the reopening trade means that everybody gets vaccinated and we all go out at once and spend money. What can you do about it? We have a rule in my house. I'm not allowed to tell my wife to relax. Uh, because relax means don't take any action. She says, don't ever tell me to relax. Don't you ever tell me to relax. I said, okay, okay, okay. Uh, uh, whatever's making you miserable, uh, don't, don't relax. So I'm not going to tell you to relax. Instead, let's explain how this plays out by introducing another item. Inflation scare. People love this stuff. They always say, I think we're having an inflation scare. Or, you know what, the reflation trade. Historically, when you get an inflation scare, the presumption is that the Federal Reserve will fight back by raising interest rates. It's been true my whole career. The current inflation scare matches up with the one we saw from November 2015 through February 2016. That's when our last Fed chair, Janet Yellen, decided to raise interest rates for the first time in nine years. It was devastating for the growth stocks. And the ones that I looked at today were Salesforce, Adobe, Workday, ServiceNow, Apple, Netflix, Amazon, a couple of others. They first got hit when she started talking about the need for a rate hike because things were getting better. Then they got hit again when the Fed tightened that December. Then the whole group got obliterated in early February after LinkedIn and Tableau data gave us a pair of surprisingly bleak forecasts in the same day, causing their stocks to get cut in half. It was a dark day. We were in San Francisco at the time, and I wasn't having any fun at all. Many investors thought that this was the beginning of the end for those high, the formerly high-flying stocks. You could hear it. I mean, everybody was saying, this is it. It's starting. Well, in reality, that was the exact bottom. After the rate hike, the inflation scare died down. Oil prices plummeted. Other commodities cascaded. And you got a chance to buy some of the greatest growth stocks of our era at ridiculously low prices on the day when people said they're finally starting to roll over. They've been rolling over for months. Of course, this time our Fed chief has vowed to hold off on raising rates. Too many unemployed. But there will come a time and a point where these growth stocks will be somewhat hopeless. They'll kind of look like they did today at, say, 947 before people came in to buy. And Oh, Kathy Wood. I have not mentioned Kathy Wood. I just thought I should mention Kathy Wood. One last term, risk off. This is the height of Wall Street can't. Can't meaning jargon, not can't as in the philosopher. If that sounds like a pointlessly confusing choice of words, risk off is the same thing. It just means rates are going higher because business is better. So you don't want to own as much stock. Now, I am happy to entertain the idea that you need to ring the register here, but I happen to like growth stocks and reflation scare. I like growth stocks when risk is on. I like growth stocks when risk is off. I would like them in a house. I would like them with a mouse. But Dr. Seuss enthusiasts all, if you want to hold on to the growth stocks and be like the, the Kathy Wood, and I don't mean to make she's like the greatest investor of our time, I know that. But if you like me and like her and you like growth, you have to be prepared to take some pain. Just like in late 2015, early 2016, that was the last great moment to buy these kinds of stocks. Now, you, you can just do some selling if you want to and try to swap back on a lower level. I've never really been able to do that that well. Just remember, millions of people have lost their jobs. And Jay Powell, Federal Reserve, BFF, let the inflation roll until these people find work. That's him. 
Does it matter? Of course it does. Janet Yellen threw gasoline on the inflation scare fire in December 2015. Powell's told you he won't do that. He just reiterated that point again today. He's not going to take it back tomorrow. To me, that means we don't have a deep sell-off because this nonsense is just gibberish. The bottom line, after today's late afternoon rebound, it's not too late to sell the more egregiously expensive stocks if you want to, the, the, what I call the electric Kool-Aid battery acid place. But as for the better growth stocks, down more than 10% from the highs, call me a buyer. Not all at once, not big, but a buyer nonetheless into any retest of that 947 low that we saw today. Kevin in Maryland, Kevin. Jim, it's great to have you back, buddy. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. Appreciate it. What's going on? Jim, I got a good friend, Darren, and I, we are both teachers, and we noticed a couple years ago all our students had this product. So we bought in, and it's done fantastic for us. We want to know if this incredible rise is going to continue, or is it time to take profits? What are your thoughts on the future of Crocs? Well, I saw Courtney Reagan interview Crocs, CEO. I came back, and I said, geez, this is a great story. I got to get the guy on. I mean, because, wow, I think you're, I think you and you, is Darren? You and Darren, I think you got you and Darren are on to something, and I like the story. And Courtney, great interview. Let's go to Michael in Pennsylvania. Michael. Hey, Jim. While many investors get swept away chasing high-flying tech stocks, my eye is on a tried-and-true consumer staples company, Procter & Gamble. P&G reported great earnings, raised its outlook, and pays a nice dividend. Despite that, it's down nearly 13% from its all-time high. I don't know about you, but even after the pandemic is behind us, I still plan on cleaning my house, washing my clothes, and wiping my you-know-what. Do you think I can clean up with P&G? Did he say that? Yeah. Can we take that out in post-production? No, no, no. no. Okay. Here's the deal. Uh, I share with you, uh, and Sarah Eisen, by the way, who happened to me quickly segue to Sarah Eisen, interviewed David Taylor today. I was surprised stock was up two bucks and it came back down. 2.4% yield. It's got tons of cash. I agree with you, uh, although I think you were, frankly, too granular. Let's go to Matt in Arizona, please. Matt. Hey, Matt. Jimmy Chill. Nobody. Booyah to you from the state of Arizona. And I like I've been this. doing homework on SJN, Smuckers. I like their dividends. They're getting into the multi-billion dollar pet food industry. And Jim, my kid has peanut allergies. They're working on a line of allergy-friendly products. That would be a game changer for me, Jim. Have you so had the spicy? Have you had any of their spicy snacks? My portfolio. I, I huh? think these guys are doing a lot of things right. It's got a 3% yield. I think that Mark Smucker's doing a dynamite job. I am with you. I like these 3% yielders. Why? Because you can't make any money in cash. And this company's doing well. Now, is it doing as well? And it does have, uh, it, 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 to me... Uh, peanut butter, it's a tough category because the other day we just saw someone get rid of Jip peanut butter. I mean, which was it, Jip? I, I forget. Peanut butter is a football product. But I do think that they've got a great mixture of very good, solid businesses, and I think that Smucker's going to have a good quarter. All right, now listen. It is not too late to sell the super expensive SPAC growth if you don't want a Churchillian fiasco on your hands. But I like growth. I like it, Sam I am. On Mad Money tonight, many consider Brinks a COVID-19 loser, along with so many of its retail customers. But does the recent earnings report tell a different story? Wow, I'll tell you, this may be one of the cheapest stocks we've ever had on. And Conagas product, I like Smuckers. Whoa, flying off the supermarket shelves. But as investors prepare for a reopening narrative, 
you think they still have what it takes, I've got the exclusive. And it's an under-the-radar company that played a pivotal role in COVID-19 vaccine development. It's right up there with Illumina. It's right up there with Danaher. It's right up there with Thermo Fisher. Do not miss my sit-down with the CEO of Charles River Labs. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. On a kind of turnaround day for the market, I like to look for stocks that defy the gravitational pull of the average when they're going lower. I'm talking about stocks like Brinks. That's the cash management firm best known for its armored trucks. When COVID steamrolled us a year ago, Brinks got crushed as Wall Street figured, well, you know, got to be a huge decline in cash-based transactions, right? But after bottoming $33 last May, this thing's come roaring back after reporting a series of surprisingly strong quarters. Late last month, Brinks pre-announced some terrific fourth quarter numbers. Then this morning, we got the full results, and they were even better than those already raised expectations. We're talking about a 63-cent earnings beat off a dollar one basis. Incredibly bullish full-year guidance. No wonder the stock jumped more than 6% today, and with the great reopening finally in sight, I think it's got a lot more room to run. Do not take it from me. Let's speak to Doug Pertz. He's the president and CEO of Brinks. He had a Better read on the quarter and where his company's headed. Mr. Perch, welcome back to Bad Money. Thanks, Jim. It's great to see you again, and it's great to see you back on the air again. Oh, thank you, Doug. I've recovered well, and I really appreciate it. That's very kind great. of you. Uh, I, I was listening to the Home Depot call today, and I was thinking, well, there's a great American company, but they couldn't give us any guidance. Then I'm on Brinks, great American company. The guidance here is extraordinary. We expect strong growth in the second half. Your confidence level is probably higher than almost any company I deal with, and yet you're a cash business. How is it possible that you have so much confidence right now? Well, you know, there's probably a misconception, Jim, uh, that we see a lot, and especially when we talk to a lot of potential investors, and that is to suggest that cash has gone down. Uh, the facts are, and we presented some of this in our earnings call today, that the strength of cash is just as strong as it was before, and the amount of cash uh, in, in the economy is just as strong, and the use is just as strong, if not stronger, even during a pandemic. Uh, so a couple examples. Uh, the Federal Reserve reports that cash in circulation in the U.S. is up 16% uh, versus the prior year. That's that's a huge number in comparison uh, to what the historical annual increases have been that have been in the five to six percent range for the last 25 plus years. And so that's a great number. Internally, our numbers of the cash that we process through our system is up six percent versus prior years. That clearly suggests cash is going away. And as we're in a time in which the economy uh, sees a lot of unemployment, we're seeing a lot more stimulus into the economy. And I think we're going to see more of that in the coming months. Uh, that's a time in which we see much more cash used in, in our economy and will continue to be. And, you know, we also see signs, surveys and everything else and other aspects that suggest that, in fact, the use of cash uh, in, on in-person uh, retail transactions has not changed materially uh, from pre-pandemic levels. So we think those are great statistics, great numbers, great backing. We can give you some more as well as we go through this today. Well, I saw the yeah. Federal Reserve numbers, which I have to tell you, uh, uh, annual growth rate uh, grown over the last 30 plus years, 6% annual, uh, the, the best in 30 years growth. Is it possible that a lot of the younger people got their checks and turned them into cash? I, I certainly is. And and certainly we've seen, uh, but but that's cash in circulation in general. Right. But but what we've seen uh, in, in prior 
times like this, 2009-2010, uh, is that the use of cash has gone up fairly dramatically during those times. And the stimulus obviously will continue to drive those things. Uh, but this was during the pandemic as well. Uh, the surveys done by the Fed as well and other third parties have suggested that the use of cash is materially the same for in-person transactions uh, uh, during the pandemic and, and after the pandemic. That's great news. I know globally, too, we talk about the U.S., but globally, two-thirds of all transactions are in cash. And so it's clearly not going away and it's stronger than it was before. I know that people, uh, the plastic guys are all saying, hey, plastic's here to stay. Uh, the, the PayPal's of the world, they say that's here to stay. But I got to ask you something. The name Brinks, one of the most coveted names in the world. I see outfits buying Bitcoin, doing that. If Brinks were to say, you know what, if you want to transact in Bitcoin, we will do it for you. And people will say, I want to work with Brinks. Would you ever do it? Well, there's, we're probably doing something very similar to that. Uh, that I think is what our next round of being uh, of alter offering alternatives to manage cash. And that is to offer what I consider to be the solution uh, that I call the digital cash solution. If about a third of payments for in-person retail in the U.S. is done in cash, yet there isn't a true solution for retailers to manage that cash in an efficient, effective, integrated way for the rest of their digital payments, then then where do you go? Well, right. that's where we think we can jump in. We think we can provide that digital cash uh, um, um, management solution. And that's what we're coming on to next, a solution that effectively takes the retailer's cash, the physical cash that they have in a store, and with our support, actually converts it into digital payments in the customer's bank account, similar and almost the same, in fact, as what debit and credit cards, uh, digital um, cash providers do for the same uh, the same payments. Well, that's like that. on an integrated basis where we're going. We think that solution can be pretty significant. And there's a huge untapped, unvented market in, in this space uh, for cash management. So, uh, Doug, I, 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 ha I can't resist. You have a terrific Brink Sustainability page in your deck. You're talking about diesel to gasoline, but you're also implementing some alternative fuel vehicles. What are you trying out and what is working? Well, certainly we're taking a look at some electrical truck vehicle alternatives in the U.S. But I think more importantly, we are implementing today alternatives from other countries that are dual fuel vehicles. Uh, vehicles that start on diesel, as an example, and convert over to natural gas, more fuel efficient, but also better for the environment. And I think on top of, the, uh, of these alternatives, it's also about how we optimize routes, reduce the number of, of truck miles, if you will, uh, or delivery miles uh, to reduce the amount of emissions. And by using the digital solutions that we're talking about and the technology around that, what we can materially reduce is the amount of truck uh, time and, and delivery and pickup time uh, to reduce emissions. Well, that's very important. We know this. These are the issues that our younger investors particularly care about. And I want to thank you for all you're doing. Wow, it's really eye-opening how incredible uh, the growth of cash is during COVID when a lot of people felt it would be the other way. Doug Pertz, president and CEO of the Briggs Company. Love to have you on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. It's great seeing you again and look forward to talking again soon. Of course. May everybody's back after the break. Can the packaged goods stock still pack a punch after the pandemic? The CEO of this pantry play dishes on consumer habits. 
and if snacking on this stock can lead to some savory profits. Next. Now that all the high-flying, high-risk stocks seem to be having a tough time of it, is it time to circle back to the safety stocks? Lately, the packaged food cohort has been extremely unloved because Wall Street only has eyes for the reopening plays. But this week, the food stocks are showing some signs of life. Take ConAgra Brands. That's the company behind Chef D, Hebrew National, Duncan Hines, Orville Redenbacher, Bertoli, Pam, Slim Jims, a huge portfolio of frozen vegetables, all sorts of newer brands. ConAgra kicked off 2021 with a, a terrific quarter. Yet the stock didn't get much credit because its sector had gone out of style. Now that the market's recent leaders are being taken out back and shot, at least intraday, think the SPACs, the recent IPOs, the sky-high tech stocks, and on a day like today, a consistent packaged food play like Conagra, 3.15% yield, looks a lot more appealing, especially after the presentation at the big consumer analyst group of New York conference last week. So let's check in with Sean Conley. He's the president and CEO of Conagra Brands to get a clearer read on his company's prospects. Mr. Conley, welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, Jim, thanks for having me. All right, so, Sean, I got to talk immediately about something that's incredible. You have completely pivoted. We see these brands, and we used to see them on TV. Uh, we see their ads, and we say, okay, maybe not. I don't know. Do I want to buy it? 80% of your ad budget's online? And how's that working for you? Well, if you look at our results, you can see it's working pretty well. And, you know, in the old days, our industry used to throw a lot of advertising dollars against outdated products. That's really not our model. Our model is to have impact, and that means you have to evolve with the times. These days, our consumers are increasingly uh, you know, untethered to their televisions, and they're on their devices. So we want to be with our consumers where they are, and that's increasingly on their devices, whether it's seeking entertainment or whether it's shopping. And that has led us to a, a digital mix in our marketing work that's over 80% of our budget. All right, so my daughter likes to bake, uh, puts it on Instagram. Uh, has a great kick out of it. Her friends do, too. Uh, they see these new uh, Duncan Hines uh, cookie dough cookie kit. Uh, and they say to themselves, you know what? I want to fool around with that. Uh, are Pinterest, where are they put it? Instagram? These people are all your spokespeople, aren't they? They are. And really, one of the great things about digital is it's a highly efficient and agile way to reach these consumers with information about our new innovations. But the great thing about it, and really the end game, is to get them talking to each other about it. Word of mouth is really the golden goose here. And we find that our digital work, which we can we can read immediately in terms of its efficacy, is critical in fueling this word of mouth. So people like your daughter can talk to their friends about it, because that's really the endorsement we're looking for, that unbiased endorsement from the consumer instead of the advertising preaching at the consumer. That's not as credible. And that's why we put such a focus on digital. All right, so let's talk frozen food. Uh, we've been talking about what a bargain it is, uh, but we know the price of food itself is starting to go up. Something we have to worry about because what's so great about frozen food is it really doesn't hit your pocketbook. Well, I think the big picture here, Jim, is that, and it's really, frankly, the big question in our whole space right now is will this elevated at-home eating persist? And uh, is it going to prove to be durable? We believe the answer to that is yes. And we believe it's going to be in large areas that where ConAgra plays like frozen food and snacking. The question is, why do you believe it's going to remain elevated? And when you look at things like uh, very simply, the fact that we expect more work to be happening at home going forward, that's undeniably going to continue. That means more breakfast and lunch occasions will likely occur at home. Think about major motion picture studios doing direct release. That means that at-home snacking will remain elevated. But with respect to younger consumers, think about the fact that all these millennials 
were literally thrust into their households to discover their inner homebody during COVID. And once they got there, they found and they discovered what it's like to cook at home and eat at home. And they found it's a super value proposition, especially in areas like frozen. And they found that it's fun. So when we consider all these factors and frankly more, it leads us to believe that this level of at-home consumption will remain elevated uh, versus what we saw uh, pre-pandemic. How do you uh, deal with the fact that my generation sees certain brands, we like them, we don't want to necessarily see them change. New generations look at that, they don't want my brand. So you have to very slowly move things. You don't want to lose that core group. But I, but I look at Healthy Choice. I remember when Healthy Choice was introduced and I used to buy it because I said, like, hey, you know what? Lose some weight. Tastes good. But it, it doesn't look right anymore. It's got the wrong packaging. My days. But you've got to hold on to both customers. How do you do it? Yeah, you know, that's interesting because I, I used to think that as well. And what we found is that consumers of all generations want modern packages and they want modern products. And they put a premium on that. And, and similarly, they reject that which looks antiquated. And when you have antiquated looking products and packages, you, the consumer is frankly willing to pay a lot less and they, they are not that interested in it. It's why design thinking is such a central part of our culture around here. We're constantly mining data, behavioral data to understand what consumers of all ages are looking for in the moment. So we can design those attributes into our products and as you know, into our packages. And when we get it right and we come up with these modern products and packages, in, and it's embedded in our product, we find that consumers of all ages want it. So that's step one. We follow that up with getting high quality distribution in store and online, step two. And then we layer our digital marketing programs on top of that. And when you come to bring it all together, what you see is very strong absolute performance and very strong relative performance, as you can tell by our growing market shares. When I look at the aisles, I, before you came on, I went to the supermarket to see how much you are in different aisles, and you do own the frozen food aisles. Really, pretty amazing. I mean, it's just you. But then I go to this popcorn. I happen to like Boom Chicken. Everybody knows that we, we get it from you. And I'm thinking, you got to bump some of these other guys off. How do you knock the other guy out? Well, when you look at our business in popcorn, ready-to-eat popcorn is actually the, the most recent place that we entered the category through the Angie's Boom Chicka Pop acquisition. Our beachhead in popcorn is in microwave popcorn, where we have two of the leading businesses in the category, which is Orville Redenbacher, and we have Act Two, which is one of our fastest growing brands in the whole company. And now we have Angie's Boom Chicka Pop in microwave, pack, microwave popcorn. Why is that important? It's important because all this entertainment that is going is happening right now during COVID, and we believe will happen post-COVID in terms of people seeking entertainment at home using all these prescription services, again, mm -hmm. direct uh, to consumer movie releases. It really points to elevated at-home snacking. Microwave popcorn is a phenomenal category for that occasion, as you know. Ready-to-eat popcorn is also great. So we've got a popcorn business that can give consumer whichever type they prefer. Well, I think you've got the right mixture. Some people, I think they're, they're, they're already starting to lose the customer because they, didn't in, they did not innovate, and that's what you do best. Sean Conley, President and CEO of ConAgra, 3% yield, good growth. Always great to see you. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Jim. This is the kind of stuff you don't have. Not everything has to be a Kathy Wood biotech, okay? And she's fabulous. She's fabulous. She's fabulous. Sometimes you just want to own something that gives you good yield, and, and it ain't going away. It's going higher. Man, money's back here for the break. Coming up, how can you make the next stage of the pandemic response work for your portfolio? As the country hopes for a COVID recovery, Kramer catches up with Charles River Labs next. 
as the market gets swept up in the reopening trade, that creates buying opportunities in high-quality stocks that actually don't fit the narrative. Take Charles River Laboratories. That's a contract research organization. It gives schools, biopharma companies, drug companies the tools they need to discover new drugs and conduct clinical drug trials. Think of it as it's basically an arms dealer to the drug industry. Last week, Charles River reported a beautiful quarter. It was a terrific top and bottom line beat with very strong full-year guidance. In response, the stock jumped from 286 to 299. That's correct. But since then, the reopening trade has taken hold. Wall Street's lost interest in consistency, and Charles River's stock has fallen back to 283. Meanwhile, you're getting that whole quarter for free, and it was a great one. So could this be a buying opportunity? Let's take a closer look with Jim Foster. He's the chairman, president, and CEO of Charles River Laboratories. Find out more about the quarter and what's next. Mr. Foster, welcome back to Mad Money. Nice to be here, Jim. So, Jim, I'm thinking a lot of people say there's too many IPOs, there's too much craziness going on. I am looking at this moment and thinking it may be the golden age of investment in new drugs. Can you describe to people how it's possible that you have 2,000 new possibilities here? So we've never seen the demand quite as great as it is now. And, and I think, you know, we worked on 80% of the drugs that were approved over the last three years and most of the drugs that weren't approved. Um, there are amazing new modalities to treat diseases, particularly cell and gene therapy. I would say that's the latest one. The 2000 drugs that you're talking about, there have been 2000 new drugs developed in cell and gene therapy. About two thirds of those are in uh, preclinical development, which is what we do. Uh, so there's enormous opportunity there. I think there'll be more coming. Um, there's a bunch of new companies that have been minted uh, by the venture capitalists. Uh, and also there's great investment by the major pharmaceutical companies in this space. And it provides great promise to treat a whole host of diseases across a whole host of therapeutic areas, in particular uh, cancer at the current time. So, Jim, when I look at cancer, I think about all the different drug companies, the big drug companies that I, I frankly, had thought had become sales forces. I really did. But now I see them buying a biotech after it's got some sort of cancer formulation. Are they buying something that Charles River has kind of said you can get a green light on this? Is that what they're really because they're buying very early stage? Uh, they are. You know, the, the biotech companies have become the drug discovery engines of the pharmaceutical industry, increasingly so. You've got small cadres of people working on very specific uh, indications, and they, they do that extremely well. And, of course, they're incredibly well-financed biotech. $130 billion came in last year, which was the largest of all time. So farmers buying a lot of these companies earlier. Uh, sometimes they wait until the early uh, clinical uh, outcomes. Sometimes they partner with them. Sometimes they, they buy the whole company or portion of the drug, as I said uh, earlier, we worked on uh, more than 80% of the drugs that get to market and most of the ones that are, are into the clinic. So, you know, we have a hand in proving the safety and effect, efficacy of these drugs uh, and help the, the companies with go and no-go decisions about continuing to develop them. So, you know, we're really proud of our role uh, in, this whole, in this whole universe. Well, let's talk about your role in, in COVID. You were involved. Uh, obviously, uh, I, I bet that you were probably more optimistic than most of the people a year ago because you've seen the wonders that were developed. You know, it's amazing. The fastest a vaccine ever got to market before this was four years. That was for mumps and five years for Ebola. So that's what people thought would happen. Typically, it's 10 years, by the way. Of course, the vaccines were developed in a year because the whole drug development paradigm worldwide worked on this uh, very serious problem. 
Uh, we worked on all of the vaccines that are now in the market, including AstraZeneca and Moderna, where we've had very deep relationships with them for years. That's one big pharma company and one now uh, big biotech company. They do all of their safety testing work with us. We're very proud of the role that we played in helping get these critical vaccines to the market. How much of what's going on, say, with Moderna, with some of these, are like a safe cracker, where you literally have an Amazon Web Services doing trillions of calculations, then giving it to Charles River, and Charles River figures out whether it can work? Yeah, uh, you know, we're, we've, we don't do the basic discovery for these companies, um, but, um, you know, Moderna has, has technology across a whole host of different therapeutic areas. Um, we're helping them move those drugs forward to determine whether they're actually effective uh, in these multiple therapeutic areas. In their case, I think they've proven the validity of the technology, with this, which is messenger RNA, by getting this vaccine to market. And we're seeing this with a whole, a whole host of other companies that have uh, cutting-edge technology, increasingly using uh, genetic sequencing, increasingly using AI uh, to, to uh, manipulate their data in a very positive and impactful way. You know, the, the biotech industry is essentially, uh, uh, when they start, these companies are all virtual. And even if they get larger, they do what they need to do. So none of the things that we do, do the, does the biotech industry do on their own. So right. when, I spoke to the, when I spoke to the CEO of Moderna recently to tell him I got the vaccine and tell him what a great job they were doing, he said, you know, we never could have got this vaccine to market without your help. And you feel really great about the, that uh, input and feedback. Well, you should. And also, I love what you're doing. You bought Cognate Bioservices. Once again, I mean, you know, $875 million. Almost every, actually every acquisition you've done since we've seen you has worked. This one is going to be more cell therapies? Yeah, this is uh, one of the largest cell therapy manufacturing companies. That's a sort of a gap that we had in our portfolio. About 10% of our revenue now will be in cell and gene therapy. Um, we actually have companies that we bought last year that that provide the cells, and now we have the technology to manufacture the drugs themselves. And of course, in our current portfolio, we can test those drugs to make sure they're safe before they go into the clinic and ultimately before they go into the market. So this is a very important strategic acquisition in a space with very, very high growth. Well, look, uh, it's been a remarkable peer review. Uh, our viewers are lucky enough to be able to have some sort of rotation that allows us to get into what I think is really one of the few companies that is at the cutting edge of every aspect of drug development. Uh, I want to thank you once again, Jim. You've been a terrific guest all along. Jim Foster, Chairman, President, CEO of Charles River Labs, an incredible company. Always great to see you, sir. Thanks, Jim. Great to see you, too. Matt Money's back after the break. Coming up. It is time. Kramer takes your calls. Rapid fire. The lightning round is next. It is time. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready to keep that? The lightning round, Kramer, we're going to start with right now with Shane in Pennsylvania. Shane. Hey, Jim. How you doing today? I am doing well. How about you? Good. So I got the best stock in the market right now. I think it's super undervalued. Got a ton of growth ahead. I just started a big position in it. What uh, What do you think of Vertex Pharmaceuticals? I don't understand, given its incredible progress with CF, why this thing is as low as it is. And I know this is negative commentary, and I think negative commentary is wrong, and I agree with you. Let's go to Ed in Florida. Ed. Hey, Jim. 
Jim Kramer. Yeah. How are you? I'm good. How about you? I'm great. I'm great. Hey, listen, I, I just want to first thank you and your, your team for everything you do for us little guys. Oh, uh, man, we're all little guys. That's the key thing. We are all. The Wall Street bets are little. The Reds people, we're little. Let's go to work. Thank you. Well, my concern is about a stock that I purchased recently, and I see it going went down about 12 bucks in a week, and I um, um, don't know if I should buy the dip or uh, hang in there. Uh, it's QuantumScape. All right, so there's a great piece by Adam Jonas the other day from Morgan Stanley. He's talking about that's the actual biotech of the group. This is Jagdeep Singh, who David Faber introduced to us. He's got the better battery, and that's what matters. Now, can they mass produce it the way we'd like to? I don't know, but I sure don't want you to bail QuantumScape. It's too interesting a spec. I need to go to Eric in New York. Eric. Hi, Jim. Yesterday, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy signed a bill legalizing recreational marijuana. I would like to ask you if now is a good time to buy Canopy Growth, ticker symbol CGC. There were a lot. There was a guy who issued equity last night. There was a really negative piece today about how Tilray wouldn't be able to do it on its own. It was a lot of negative, a uh, lot of negative cannabis story. And what happened? Canopy is still up 43 percent. It was down 4.5 percent. I want to be a buyer of Canopy. Kushboo in New Jersey. Kushboo. Hi, Jim. Glad to see that you're feeling better and back in action. Thank you. It's a little hellish, but thank you. BT's him. Well, go ahead. What's up? I'd first like to wish my brother Monty a happy 40th birthday. He's also a fan of your show. 40 years old, loves the show. Happy birthday. <laughs> Jim, what are your thoughts on the realty company EXPI? Oh, my God. Okay, so I, I, I pull this thing up when I'm sick. And I'm looking at this thing. I'm saying, how the hell have I not heard about this company? Uh, my wife is in real estate. She worked for Corcoran. This is a real deal company. And it's a very, very good company. Uh, I am more partial to Zillow. But I, but this is, they have a fabulous website. They're doing a lot of great things. Let's go to Michael in Illinois. Michael. Hey, booyah, Jim. Booyah. I, I, I'm looking at fuel cell energy right now. I got in at $2.50 last year. And I don't know whether to buy more. No, right no, no, now. no, 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 no. You got a great basis. You want to take a little out of that basis, and you can let it ride. You don't have to worry about it. Uh, I would say. I mean, one of the things that's happened is we're watching Andy Marsh and plug power come down. Why? Because we can't seem to get enough traction among the large trucking companies to be able to say this thing's going to come down in price. So the group is a little rich right now. I like it. But remember, spec, 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 spec. Let's go to Jeff in Kentucky. Jeff. Jim, big booyah from the Bluegrass State, Louisville, Kentucky, the home of UPS Airlines, Humana, and Papa John's. But my question is not about them. It's about D-I-S-H. D-I-S-H. I read a lot of negative research in the last few days. No, no. Too risky for me. I need to go to Rich in New York. Rich. Hey, hi, Jim. How you doing? How's it going? Listen, I got a question here. Uh, Mr. Russell added two great people to his to his board, and uh, but the stock isn't playing well in the sandbox, Jim. Uh, I'm asking you about Laser, L-A-Z-R. All right, all these stocks got hit because of what happened with this Churchill and the merger uh, with Lucid, and it brought all of them down because people said, wait a second, I'd rather be in Southwest Air. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, don your suit of armor and decide what type of investor you want to be. Kramer's breaking down the key lessons from the Reddit revolution that could make you money. Next. All right, what really happened with the great GameStop caper? 
While I was recuperating last week, I devoured the congressional hearing. So tonight I want to clear up some confusion. Ever since GameStop stock started nosediving a few weeks ago, We've been hearing a stabbed-in-the-back narrative. It goes like this. Just when the Reddit revolutionaries had the short-selling hedge funds on the ropes, Wall Street closed ranks and got commission-free brokers like Robinhood to sell out their users by suspending trading in the GameStops and the AMCs. The only problem? That story's not true. Let me say up front that I'm a big fan of anyone who can help regular people try to make money. I love that this Reddit forum has so many people engaging with the stock market. How about Robinhood? I think Robinhood's generally been a force for good, and they've built a terrific app. But three weeks ago, they screwed up. Their systems were overwhelmed. CEO Vlad Tenev was apologetic at the hearings, which is good. I like that. Although it'll take a lot more than that to win back the user's trust. That said, if Robinhood's meltdown prevented you from buying GameStop at 300 and GameStop's now in the 40s, well, guess what? They didn't stab you in the back. You dodged a bullet. If you listen to the stabbed in the back myth, the big villain is Ken Griffin. He's the CEO of Citadel, who's built an incredible family of funds with the world's best clearinghouse. Citadel pays Robinhood for order flow, which can seem like a sketchy practice, but it's the only way you'll ever get commission-free trading. You've got to make some money. I don't think Citadel did anything wrong either. It's not Griffin's fault that he's built up an enormous market share, allowing him to offer the best price. You can argue the clearinghouse business is too concentrated. You'd be right. But that's on the regulators, not on Griffin. Steve Hoffman from Reddit. I love Reddit. Sure, it can be chaotic and incoherent and sometimes horrible, but that's just the Internet, right? What about Melvin Capital, the short-selling hedge fund that got squeezed? I don't know what to tell you here. They got greedy and turned a huge win into a huge loss. Seems like a bad idea to bet against a video game retailer right before a slew of major new console launches, but hedge funds make dumb trades all the time. And then there's the smartest guy of all, the Reddit hero, the one who figured it out and made a fortune in the process, Keith Gill a.k.a. Roaring Kitty. This guy is everything I like about the business, everything. He figured out the GameStop was a combustible situation, and he profited from it. Good for him. It was a magnificent trade. Here's where this whole thing, though, starts to get under my skin. Most of the people who love Gil seem to despise me. According to the stabbed-in-the-back narrative, I'm either owned by the short sellers or in the pocket of the clearing firms or conspiring with the Bavarian Illuminati. My crime. I ripped out the catheter. Don't worry. It was one of those. It was not the real deep kind. And, and I called him from my hospital bed. I called him to squawk on the street to Carl and to David. And I told people to sell GameStop at 350 Top of the world, ma. Apparently, anyone who told you to sell is the enemy. Well, uh, was I trying to bust the well-orchestrated short squeeze? No. I just wanted to help viewers try to make money. GameStop's down 300 points since then. It was what I call the right call. Here's the thing. Even if Robinhood hadn't suspended trading the meme stocks, even if I hadn't told you to sell, game stocks still would have come back to earth. This was a short squeeze, where embattled short sellers are forced to pay up for the stock to close out their positions. But squeezes do not last forever. Sooner or later, you run out of short sellers with their backs against the wall. GameStop, the chain, is having a couple of good months. Good for them. But long term, it's still in serious trouble. Hey, Ryan Cohen, God love you, maybe you got the answer. GameStop, the stock, was trading like business was booming. If you care about making money, you had to sell at 350 not buy. And that's the problem right there. There's a new contingent of investors, I'm calling them rebels without a cause, who don't seem to care about making money. They want to somehow be right even when they lose money. That's not how it works, though. I can't believe I have to say this, but if you're not trying to make money, what the heck are you doing owning stocks? 
I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise to try to find it just for you right here on May of Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. 